If you're following, we're uh, beginning page 11, and uh, we're beginning chapter 2 of Philippians. We've been on Philippians now probably about five or six weeks, and we've only done one chapter, so it's an indication of how long it's going to take us to do this. But some of that is due to the fact that it's a, it's a very rich book, a lot in this. All right, chapter 2 <clears throat> The Apostle Paul is calling um, his readers uh, to a lifestyle that um, fits very much with the the theme of chapter 1. But it's a lifestyle of humility, uh, a lifestyle of unity. uh, And the way he does it is um, really, really neat. So I I want you to... um, and I've laid it out this way in your notes, I want you to see how well-organized these first two verses are. This is, uh, I'm not sure I'd want to say literary masterpiece. That's probably not the right way to say it. But it's, it, it, is, it is a really easy-to-identify structure, how these two verses fit together. Now, in your notes, if you follow those as I read, If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Those two verses are loaded with phrases and terms that are really important. However, it is very important as well, that you understand how the word if is used. Um, When you read or hear the English word if, what does that mean? Do you understand what I'm asking? What what does that mean? If, If a phrase or a clause or a sentence is introduced with the term if, what do you expect? How do you understand that? It's conditional. It's conditional. And so it's like, if I see these four things, then I should see these four things. So if you're with me, in other words, verse 1 talks about the kind of foundation that should produce the four things in verse 2. However, there's one other item I'm, I really should I don't want you to be particularly concerned that you have to know Greek to understand all these things. But sometimes the knowledge of Greek helps. (laughs) And here it really helps because verse 1, introducing the word if, is a first-class condition. Now, you all know what that means, right? (laughs) What it means is you're making a statement where you assume what you're saying is true. So in other words, the proper way to bring that into English is to translate it since. Since these four qualities are yours, therefore, I should see this. So Paul is saying, since the things that are in chapter 2, verse 1, are characteristic of Christian people, then make my joy complete. Paul's personalizing this. 
by focusing on these four results. Let's put it another way. I put it this is a third different way. The four items he mentions in verse one are the foundation for what comes in verse two. Without verse one, you're not going to see verse two. I said the same thing three different ways. So does it make sense? You really, you really have to see the relationship of the, and not always do you have to do this, but sometimes you really do. You really have to see the relationship of these, these two verses grammatically. And when you understand the grammatical relationship, then you really understand the power of what these two verses are saying. Okay, if you're with me, I, I, I did mean to get into a little tiny grammar lesson there, but without that, you miss the real potency of this. So, what he's saying, and again, the way I've, I've put it there in your notes, these are the four things that should characterize a Christian's life. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and compassion, or tenderness and compassion, or tender compassion. They're given. Let's take them apart. <clears throat> First of all, encouragement in Christ. The key is the phrase, in Christ. That is used 217 times in the New Testament. And it really, it really captures, I think we may have talked about this before, so I, I like to kind of draw it as a circle. The phrase, in Christ, captures as a phrase all of the different aspects, qualities, and givens of the Christian life. It's the place of security. It's the place of safety. It's the place of trust. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And now Paul's adding another word, the place of encouragement. And I'm using the word that is used in translation. So if you're following what I've, I've tried to do here and you follow what the Apostle Paul is really saying here, um, being in Christ, by the way, how do you get in Christ? By putting your faith in him. I mean, you come to that point in your life where you you understand his death, burial, and resurrection was for you. You appropriate that by faith, and you're in Christ. And it's it's just it's oh, it's an incredible phrase throughout the the New Testament. Like I said, it's used 217 times, just over and over again. You read it, and you say, oh "My goodness, that's me." You read it, that's describing me. You read it, that's characteristic of me. You read it, and you say, "That's where I am," and that's what you, it should be your response. So here he uses the word encouragement in Christ. Let's talk about that. That's another way of saying, I want to talk about that. <laughs> so encouragement. You're in Christ. Encouragement. What, what's encouraging about that? Okay. Good. Confirming. Okay. Good. Support. 
support. Because mm -hmm. the way he's talking here in, in these um, two verses, before he even gets into the next section, he's talking about the people, the relational dimension of the church here at Philippi and the characteristics of the people. So what else can you think of in terms of the encouragement that we find in Christ? <clears throat> and what does encouragement mean? Just, I mean, you, you, you try to encourage your children or encourage a fellow worker or encourage an employee that you, you lead in your team or something like that. But what does it mean? What are you trying to do? It's home. Give them hope? I'm sorry. You say come alongside Come alongside. I mean, it can uh, it can be a very um, comforting and and strengthening aspect of a relationship, because uh, all of us. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody is an exception to that. All of us had down days. We have difficult days. We go through difficult times in life, and that encouragement in Christ, and all that goes with being in Christ, helps us to keep going helps us to see and have hope for tomorrow, help us to be primarily and fundamentally Christians should be the most optimistic people on planet Earth. Because we happen to know how this story's going to end. And, you know, and, and, and generally, when, when I was like, H.L. Mencken used to say, Christianity is that haunting, dismal thought that somewhere, someone is happy. <laughs> that is not a nice thing to say about Christianity. I mean, it's just... <laughs> That was the image that he had. You know, Christians are the most dismal, gloom and doom people I've ever been around. That shouldn't necessarily be the case. So this isn't going as well as I thought it would go. But the idea, Ty. I was just going to say, if you consider chapter one and then kind of how it ends leading up to the statement, we've got Paul in prison, and talking to people he has a relationship with. They might view his ministry as being hampered, but he's tying everything back to positionally where they're at with Christ. And so he's mm -hmm. essentially giving them a hope that has footing or grounding in mm -hmm. Christ, I think is what the power of the encouragement is. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's, that's well stated. That's, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. We are in the business of encouraging one another. And the basis of our encouragement is not our circumstances. It really isn't. That isn't the basis of our encouragement. I mean, a couple of months ago, if I would see Woody and encourage him based on his circumstances, he'd look at me and think I was an absolute idiot. That's not the basis of his encouragement. It's who he is in Christ. That's, that's what he's driving at here. Because as Ty correctly said, when Paul is writing this, he's in prison. <laughs> Which, you know, that's just counterintuitive to use a word like encouragement from somebody that's in prison. But that's not the point. Being in Christ has nothing to do with circumstances. Being in Christ has everything to do with your position. Uh, I, I, with Christ. I think, it, you know, to me it has, you know, something to do with our belief that nothing happens by accident and God has a plan for all of us and it's none of our business <laughs> <laughs> well that's a blunt way to put it in a way uh, yeah but I mean you're right in the sense that 
a word that I think captures a little bit of what you're saying is our faith and trust in God because we know what we know about him, what we know about what he's doing, and our belief, strong belief, that we have a play, a, a role to play in all that. Yeah, I mean, that's all. I guess in a way it is none of our business in that sense. But there, the expectation that God has from us is that we will trust him. And he has our best interests at heart. Do we believe that or don't we believe that? So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get you to, to do with these phrases, and I mean, it's going to take this long probably to get through all eight of these, the four foundational things, the four results. These are rich, these are rich concepts for us. They're very rich in how we see ourselves and how we think about ourselves. Sa- yeah, please, please. Um, you know, it seems like today we're just inundated with words, communication, phone, email, you know, cell phones, all of that. And, and words just abound. But these words are different in that, it seems like to me, like chapter one, these are true. And we can count on these things as being true. They're not just so many words of commerce or trying to, you know, create a transaction or just verbiage, they're stated with a purpose that's true for us as individuals, it seems like. And I think maybe that's, you go through and parse these words out so well for us that they have additional gravity beyond what we might otherwise get if we were just reading it through and you're slowing us down and having us look at this as we can count on these words as truth in our lives. And try. base our lives on them. Try. And I think that's why this book is different from maybe the greatest novels ever written. Yeah. Cool. Uh, because this is for eternity and this is for us and it's, it's to encourage us. And um, I just like, <coughs> you're, you're getting it, making us see this. I think it's very helpful to encourage us. That's, that's good. Right. Words are important. I've, I believe words are really important. I spend a lot of time on words, but uh, I think we have to remember, if, uh, as perhaps the final uh, point you're, uh, the point you're making, is that God has chosen to reveal Himself through words. It's a verbal revelation. It isn't just concepts that we draw from observing what He's created. We learn about God from what He's created, but we learn far more about God by what he's communicated through his word. This is an inspired word. It isn't just the creation of some human. This is a human being whom God is using and superintending to accomplish his verbal revelation. So as Paul would say, I, you know, I have the authority of Christ as I speak. And now he did not say that boastfully, he said that factually. So the second one is um, consolation, since there is in your life consolation Hard to translate this correctly. Consolation from or because of love. Another way to translate consolation is comfort. So let's think about that for just a moment. Um, It does not explain to us here. It does not explain to us here the nature of the love in the sense of who is loving whom. 
but probably what should we infer? Do you understand my question? Consolation of love, the comfort that I realize from love. But whose love for whom? It's God's love for us. Yeah, I think that must be the beginning point of this. Um, that is that is stated all over the scriptures. The comfort, the consolation that I have because God loves me. I think that's how we should begin thinking about this. All right, let's talk about that. Why and how does that bring consolation? Does that bring comfort? That's a given. Again, these four statements are because or since this is true. It's not if it's true. It's because this is true. Since this is true. So comfort in or from or because of his love for me. How does that bring comfort? Why is that an important truth to know? Why is that something that's foundational? I mean, this is like a duh question. But I think it's really important for us to lay some of this out on the table. Why is this important? There's a security in the love from Christ to us, which would be appealing to them, again, from their circumstances. Um, appealing to them and what Paul's message is is because again it's grounded in Christ it's something that cannot change um, so they've gone from a place of not experiencing that love to now living in that and that's their bedrock is God's reason. love for us and again assuming I'm putting that in the circle so we've made that decision of faith is God's love for us conditional no you know um I think we've talked about this before in a little bit of a different context. But there is nothing I can do that's going to cause God to love me more or love me less. And that's, to me, now I, I have very strong convictions in that area, but among many other applications, comfort that comes from the knowledge and understanding that God loves me unconditionally means I flee from performance-based Christianity. I flee from the idea that what I do will cause God to love me more. Because I don't know if you've ever, I've thought through that a lot, and I think that's extremely important. But I constantly, constantly, constantly meet people when I start in a conversation with them whether they articulate it exactly this way or not, they're living a life with this understanding. When I do something bad, God doesn't love me anymore. When I do something that's displeasing to God, he just doesn't love me like he did yesterday. Now, I, I'm, again, they're not going to say it exactly the way I said it, but that's really what they're saying. And then, therefore, when I really, when I really work hard and I really strive for my obedience... And I, I had a good day where I don't think I did anything wrong. God loves me more now at the end of the day as I put my head on the pillow. God loves me more today than he did yesterday when I was doing bad things. That's how a little child talks. Because a little child sometimes can have that image or understanding about mommy and daddy. When I do bad things, mommy doesn't love me like she did yesterday when I was a good boy. Which is absolutely, that's just horrible for a child to feel that way. But sometimes the way parents treat their children, that's 
the image and the message they're sending. That's not the message God sends to us. God says to us, I love you so much, I'm sending my son. He's going to die in your place. He's going to be resurrected and pay the penalty of death. He's going to conquer death. Ah, that's how much I love you. And all I want you to do is just believe that I did that. Put your faith in me. And there's absolutely nothing you can do more or less that's going to cause me to love you more or less. When you start thinking about it from that perspective, that's great consolation, great comfort. It's for, should forever put to death the idea that I'm earning the love of God. Because I can't do that. So let's turn that on its head. Therefore, why do I want to obey him? Because if that's true, then it would seem that I can do whatever I want. He'll still love me. Amen? Yes, but... Remember what Jesus said? And again, it's, a it's first class condition. It should be translated this way. Since you love me, obey me. I say this to my students all the time. The worst motivator for permanent change in a person's life is guilt. Guilt is a terrible motor. I'm not saying God the Holy Spirit uses guilt when we sin. But to use guilt as the primary motivator for behavioral change, that isn't going to work. That doesn't bring about change. Because if I, if I use guilt, you know, I know Andrew fairly well, if I start heaping lots of guilt on him, what I'm really doing is I am manipulating and controlling him for my preconceived end. And I'll hammer him into the ground, make him so, feel so bad. That, okay, I give up, I'll do it. Why is he doing it? Grudgingly? Not willingly, but he's sick and tired of the guilt I'm heaping on his heart and soul. That's not how God does it. Permanent transformational change comes when we grow and deepen our love for him. That's a big difference. Am I, am I communicating with you or have, have I lost you on that? That's, that's all that is in back of this phrase, comfort or consolation of love. And again, the beginning of point has to be God's love for us. And then also our love for others, because without understanding and, and really grasping and applying God's love for us, we'll never be able to love people. I don't like people. I don't. I don't like people. But I believe the Lord wants me to love people. And I think there's a difference between liking people and loving people. That's a terrible way to put it. I just, I'm very transparent. I've borne my soul to you. No, I'm... Jim, how about on the other side of it? When we uh, follow his leading during a day, when we put our head on the pillow at night and feeling somewhat closer to God, having served in his will and, and carrying on his will, we feel good about that. Sort of the antithesis of mm -hmm. the other. How does that play into this in terms of our growth? Well, I mean, I don't know what word you want to give. There's a lot of words we could give to that. I mean, um, I don't think, I think God wants us to put our head on the pillow each night, knowing we're forgiven, knowing our, we're secure in him, knowing 
that there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's from Romans chapter 8. And that what I do out of love for him is pleasing to him. And I can put my head on the pillow. Even if I've sinned that day, which we all have done, and I've confessed my sin to him, and I, I can sleep like a baby. I can have a sense of accomplishment in a God-honoring way. I mean, a sense of accomplishment. This was a good day. And it's not measured by how many times I did sin or didn't sin, but it's a good day because I walked with God today. And that's every night we should be able to put our head on a pillow and say, I walked with God today. And that doesn't mean we didn't sin. We did. It doesn't mean we didn't have evil thoughts. We did. It doesn't mean we didn't have some interpersonal relationship breakdowns. We probably did. Uh, what it means is when it was necessary for me to ask forgiveness, I did that. Necessary for me to agree with God, and I, I did that. My walk with him is secure. That's the kind of that's the kind of life he wants us to live. And that's the, that's the transformed life. We Peggy has a um, she she has some real physical health issues. She's got heart condition, other things. But anyway, she has a dear friend that this gal and her are, are, are talking a lot, the email and, and talk a lot on the phone and things like this. And there's a little phrase they both because she's very sick too. And this is the phrase they keep going back and We're being patient for the process. That's a great, that's very theological. My wife is so theological. You know, who would ever come up with that? That's just a great phrase. Because God is patient for the process, so therefore we should be patient for the process. What's the process? The process is transformation. It, just, it's, it takes God our whole life to transform us. But Paul is talking here about the givens, the givens in our life. This is, these are the givens. This is what characterizes us. And um, the, the, the comfort that comes from knowing we're loved unconditionally, man, that's, that is a profound concept. And I know I use that word profound a lot, but that is a profound concept. It's a profound truth. I'm loved unconditionally. And there's great consolation and comfort in that. Is it just me that struggles with that? <clears throat> I understand that intellectually. I believe that intellectually. But in reality, you know, my life doesn't experience that. People are pretty, un pretty conditional. So am I. So it's, I have to constantly remind myself because you tend to Put those same Amen. traits on God. Amen. Yeah, I, when I do something that I know is wrong, I think, oh man, I'm out of fellowship. Yeah. God doesn't love me. I know that's not me. quite right, yeah. but you still feel that way. Yeah. And I think uh, willful, hardened heart sin can interrupt our, and affect our fellowship with the Lord. It doesn't affect His love for us, but it affects our relationship with Him. And that's a, that's a little bit of a different, but it, you're, you're, you're right. And I think um, this is a real heart of agape, which is the word for love that's used here, this unconditional kind of love. That's the basis for us, then, loving other people unconditionally. You know, I, in our church, there's, there's a, it's, a, it's a pretty ugly situation, but there's a man who has been very, very unfaithful to his wife. And uh, there's a divorce now that's uh, in process. And I've talked with this young man. I've talked with him many times. I know our, our lead pastor has spent hours and hours and hours and hours with him. 
and saying to him, your role is to unconditionally love your wife. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. And he says, well, you don't live with her. And I mean, I know this girl. I can't think what the problem is. But there are little things like, well, she doesn't put my wash away. Okay? This is what he brings up. She doesn't put my wash away. Okay? And they have two children. They're not in school yet, so that may have something to do with her not putting your wash away last night. But, you know, it just seems like, what planet are you living on? Because a man is to unconditionally love his wife. Why? Because God unconditionally loves me. Therefore, he will give me the power and the enablement to have that kind of relationship with my wife, with my children. You've got many of you are dads here, or have been dads, or your grandparents, or whatever. You know, the worst thing you can send to your kids is the message that you love them conditionally. That, okay, John, you must do this. And Julie, you must do this. And if you don't, Daddy doesn't love you anymore. Is that the message you want to send to your kids? Of course not. So what, and I'm not, I didn't want to, because you brought it up, I'm going to bring this in now. So therefore, the comfort that we have from understanding and experiencing the love that God has for us gives us the comfort and the ability to love other people that way. But not very many people do that. Not very many people do that. Our love is often... Our expressions of love, verbal and nonverbal, we're sending the message this is conditional. And if you don't behave, I'm not going to love you anymore. All right. Do we want to take the risk of going to the third one, or do we have we had enough? <laughs> this is not as difficult, but it's equally as as important. Since there is fellowship, I believe that preposition should be translated with the Spirit. It, it, it can be of, it can be translated of, but I, normally it's translated with. So let's talk about that. <clears throat> Being in Christ means you have fellowship. Now, this is one of those Greek words. Everybody knows this Greek word. It's koinonia. You ever heard that Greek word? That's one of those Greek words. You know, it's like agape. Everybody heard that word at one point or another. But fellowship, the koinonia with the spirit or of the spirit or because of my koinonia with the spirit, I have fellowship with others. So let's talk about that a little bit. First is encouragement that I have from being in Christ. The comfort and consolation that I have because of the love of God for me, which is an unconditional love. Thirdly, because of the fellowship, the koinonia with the Spirit. What uh, what, What does fellowship mean? Ah, good. Bond. Good word. What does that mean? Relationship. All right. It's a relational word. Good. It's a relational word. Um, It's a vital, there's a vitality to this relationship. Um, Is anything else come to your mind when you think of relationship, fellowship, bond? Common investment. 
you're sharing something together, a, a shared purpose, a shared bond. You already said that. Uh, yeah. But why does he say it? Fellowship of or fellowship with the Spirit. And I'm, sure, I'm certain all of your translations have capitalized the S there, Spirit, to the Holy Spirit. Why does he put it that way? Good. Talk to me a little more about that. Why? Because it's a gift. Okay, it is. So the it is really he. It's a person. When you put your faith in Christ, among the many, 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 many things that happen to you, what is one of the things that happens to you in which the Spirit is involved? You're indwelt. You're indwelt by the Spirit. He takes up residence, which is just a very... It's a very difficult thing to think about, what that exactly means, and, and I think yet it's a very important part of it, that the Spirit takes up a residence within us. The Bible says we are the new temple of the living God. The old temple is gone. That age, that era, that's gone. We are the new temple. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, which means that God, through his Spirit, dwells in me, which is one of the key elements of my relationship with him, my fellowship with him. He's with me. He's in me. He's motivating me. John 16 says he teaches me. Um, he's my comforter. One of the titles of the Holy Spirit, he's my parakletos, my comforter, the one who comes alongside and helps me. I mean, there are just so many words that explain the function and role of the Holy Spirit in your life. So therefore, he is the key to your koinonia, your fellowship with God, your relationship with God. That's true. This isn't something that's hypothetical. It isn't something that's conditional. It's a given. You have koinonia with the Spirit. Now, the Bible says you can quench the Spirit in your life. The Bible says you can put him down the Bible says you can ignore him. The Bible says you can harden your heart against him. But the given is, you put your faith in Christ, you have a relationship with him. So it, it's, it's, a supernatural, uh, it's a supernatural relationship. Um, let's talk a little more about this. Um, can you think of anything in the, in the New Testament where it talks about the Spirit's role and the nature of this relationship, the nature of this fellowship with Him? That the Spirit is described as a helpmate for us to help us mm -hmm. in times where we actually do need help. Mm -hmm. What's, remember when we studied Romans. We were in chapter 8 of Romans. What's one of the things the Spirit can do for us? Say again? Intercede for us. When we can't verbalize a prayer, we're hurting so much, or it's just so overwhelming, it tells us in Romans 8, he prays for us. Which is just, that's kind of an incredibly awesome thing to think about. I mean, have you ever, I've been there several times in my life where I, I'm, there's a situation, I just, I don't even know how to pray. I, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to articulate a prayer. So I just, I, I've just said, Holy Spirit, you promised that you do this in Romans 8. 
You're just going to have to take all the emotions I'm feeling, all of the anxiety I'm experiencing right now. I can't get a clear head. I can't. Just take, what's the best prayer for this? I don't, I don't know how to pray this. The Bible says that's what he does. That's part of the koinonia. That's part of the fellowship. He's our teacher. I already mentioned that, John 16. What does that mean, he's our teacher? Well, he takes the word that he's inspired and teaches us. Is he teaching you today? I mean, if you, if you have been moved and been encouraged and built up from just studying these couple phrases, that's, I'm not doing that. The Spirit of God is doing that. <clears throat> Let me take you another place. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, one of the most magnificent chapters on how the Holy Spirit works in our life. Paul says, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. You receive the Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. Therefore, you have access to God's wisdom, God's truth, such that at the end of the chapter, you have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean I'm omniscient. That, that doesn't mean that. But it means I'm beginning to get God's perspective on things. I'm beginning to see and understand things from God's perspective. The Holy Spirit does that. And then there's another, in that same passage, there's another aspect of the Spirit's work. He opens our heart to accept willingly the things that are in God's Word. Um... I'm going to be very transparent here and give you a personal illustration. There are many times in my life, and last night was one of them, where I know the Holy Spirit is encouraging me to do something. I mean, it's from His Word, it's clear, and I just say, I don't want to do it. And I mean, I just say, I, I, I don't want to do this. So, Spirit, you have to change my will because I'm not going to do this grudgingly. I don't want to do it. And it's almost like I'm saying, I don't want to do it, and you can't make me. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 2 says that the Holy Spirit works on our heart so that we willingly embrace the truth, what he wants us to do. That's part of what Paul's talking about here. It's a magnificent work in, in our lives of the Holy Spirit. Some people, I think that's almost a too radical a statement, but some people have said, you know, this Holy Spirit's the forgotten member of the Trinity. Everybody talks about the Father. Everybody talks about the Son. But the Spirit, you know, and yet we shouldn't do that because the Holy Spirit is really, really important because he is co-equal with the Father and Son. He's part of the Trinity. But his role now, it's not... It, it's a role that's, and I don't want to, I'm not sure I wouldn't even say subtle, but it's a role, it's in us. He's in us. He's working in us. But it's not like Jesus going to the cross and dying and being resurrected. The Spirit's work is that persistent, ongoing, relentless work of God in our lives. God pursues us relentlessly with His grace. And once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is the Spirit. He never, ever, 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 ever gives up working on you. And I... How do we develop that close relationship with the Spirit? And like, He's a brother. And he's mm -hmm. part of us. How do we... Mm -hmm. 
Fred, you know, I, 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 I've been asked that. I don't, there's no magic silver bullet answer to that. You know, do these three things, you got it. It, it isn't that. But I do think, it, at the same time, it isn't so foreign and mystical, it's impossible to understand. I think it's, it, 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 it results from and is a part of, and that's why I, I do classes like this, helping people to be in the Word of God and become students of the Word of God because the Holy Spirit inspired this and this is the primary mechanism he uses to teach us. That's one aspect of it. I think the, uh, the life of prayer, where, I mean, and you know how we've talked about that before here in, our, in a group. Prayer is you have a formal time where you, you know, your prayer list or whatever you do in your, in your very formal time. But prayer is more dynamic than that. It's praying without ceasing, Paul says. It's that constant, ongoing conversation with God. That sensitizes us to the things of the Spirit. A third example from the Bible, a third part of that I should simply say from the Bible, is conscience. The Bible speaks of having a conscience that's, I'm paraphrasing it, but in, in, this is essence what it says, the conscience that's sensitized by the Spirit. And how does your conscience get sensitized, sensitized by the Spirit? By being in the Word. So, I mean, it's, it's, those kinds of, it's those kind of things. It's like a circle that just keeps going around. And I think uh, first, or Ephesians 5.18 talks about being filled with the Spirit, which, again, that sounds so mystical, but it's not. It's just allowing the Spirit to be in control of your life. Um, it's a life where uh, that over time, more and more, it's being characterized by loving obedience to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit tells, uh, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. I mean, it's all of those things just together that begins to characterize this life of spirit-energized living. You know, that's not a bad phrase. Spirit-energized living. I, somebody write that down so I don't forget that. That's not a bad way to put that. But, um, and honestly, is in back of all that he's saying here when he talks about fellowship of or fellowship with the Spirit. It's an, it's an incredible concept. So we have three down and one to go, and it's 25 of one. Do you think we'll finish these four? Let's see if we can. Finally is, um, and this is, this is what is called a hendiades. And what that means is you should put those two together. Some of your translations... Since there is affection and compassion, some of your translations might have tenderness and compassion. Put those together. A tender compassion. So, encouragement because we're in Christ. Comfort because of the unconditional love of God for us. The fellowship with God's Spirit, 24-7, tender compassion. The first three result, or rather are characterized by and result from our relationship with God. Tender compassion is the the result we should have for other people. 
because that's that's part of God's love for us. Tender compassion. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because this is this is this is not easy to define this, whether it's a Greek word or an English word, it's not easy to define this. So let's talk about this a little bit. What is compassion? Let's think of some synonyms for compassion. You know what I mean? What are some synonyms for compassion? He is a compassionate person. What does that mean? Empathetic. Empathetic. What's empathy? Uh, Feeling what others are feeling. Feeling yourself. Yeah, that old saying, I'm walking in his shoes. I mean, I really, it isn't just sympathy, although sympathy can be a part of compassion, but empathy, it's deeper than that. Um, Um... Think of the number of times in the Gospels where uh, I remember one, uh, uh, Jesus is in uh, Galilee and there's just a horde of people. And they've been with him all day, they're hungry, and this is what's going to lead to the feeding of 5,000. And the text says, and Jesus, having compassion on them, told his disciples to order them to sit down. I mean, it's just that... So what's motivating Jesus to do what he's going to do in feeding the 5,000 is he had compassion on them. Luke 15, the, the, the very important passage on the prodigal son or the lost son. If you, if you look carefully at the text, there's one key word that shows up twice. Of the father in the story, he had compassion on his son. Not, his, not, not the old brother, but the son who ran away and took third of the wealth of the family with him. Every day the father went out to the end of the road of their estate and was looking. Today, today my son will come back. And it said, and he had compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion. So to have tender compassion, uh, in, that, in that term, compassion Caring and empathy, it also, I think, brings in forgiveness that we're being taught by the Spirit, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and He forgives us for mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're going to be hurt or have a resentment against somebody that we feel like they disrespected us or something, mm-hmm. I think we have to forgive them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and, that's, and then when you do that, you, you feel warmer towards them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. Another thing. Forgive, a forgiving spirit I think, is a part of compassion. I, I totally agree with you. Another thing. I completely missed that. That. Uh, the first. The first verse when we talked about if there's any fellowship of the spirit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you fi- I finally got that to what you were saying. The spirit, you're talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, like you said, he kind of discarded sometimes or disrespected the spirit. <laughs> you know, we talk about forgotten member of the Trinity. Right. <laughs> That's there. It's there. Yeah, black yeah. and white. Yeah, but it is. Thank you. I'm glad you saw it. That's good. <laughs> um, 
let's talk some more about this. This is very uncomfortable, isn't it? I don't like talking about this kind of stuff. Tender compassion. That's a that's a woman's phrase. That's not a man's phrase. Not true. This only it says female only to uh, tender compassion. Tenderness, or the word is affection. By the way, this is really going to really floor you. The word affection is is a word that is referring to our bowels. Now, <laughs> now the reason that's the only reason it's, it's both humorous, but it's also in the ancient world, they they believed that the center of emotion and feeling was in the bowels. We say it's in the heart. You know, on Valentine's Day in February, we send Valentine's to our wife. I love you with all my heart. If you lived at the time of Paul, you would say, "Honey, I love you with all my bowels." You know, which would not communicate an awful lot to my wife Peggy. She'd probably throw me out of the house or something. But so it's like with with all the emotion I can well up within me, I want to show compassion to you. That's those two words together. It's with all the all the emotion and empathy and that I can swell up within my heart. I, I just want to show that to you. So, what, what is he saying here? I mean, what, when do we do that? To whom do we do that? I mean, he doesn't say. I was like, all these phrases are very short, they're very pithy. And you have to kind of take them apart and then put them back together again. So, tender compassion toward... Does he qualify it? People. People in need. People that are hurting. I believe I've mentioned this before, if, if I have, uh, excuse me, but it's really a good illustration. In the first century, this was something the early church was manifesting. In the Roman Empire, Greco-Roman world, they couldn't, they couldn't figure it out. They just could not figure out what they were doing. I'm just reading um, about halfway through a biography of Caesar Augustus. Uh, he was the, the most important emperor in the entire Roman Empire. But the only reason I'm saying that, I was reminded of something. When he was born, it was always, it's always the way it was in the Greco-Roman world. When he was born, the midwives cleaned him up, made sure he didn't have any broken bones or anything like that, and took him to his father. And his father decides whether he lives or dies. In the Greco-Roman world, the father was the most powerful person in the family. Women were treated, I mean, even, even though Rome, the Greco-Roman society, women had a degree of influence and could own property, in the marriage relationship, they were always substandard to their husband. It was very common for the husband to beat his wife, those are just very common things. That's why it's so radical when Paul comes on the scene and says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. No Greco-Roman husband did that. But you're going to do it. So in that kind of a context, there were many, 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 many children that were either directly killed or they were taken up to the hills and just exposed to die. You know what started to happen? As the church began to grow... Christians began to show tender compassion on those babies, and they'd go up to the hills and rescue them. Why did they do that? 
Because the Bible makes it clear human life is of infinite worth and value to God. Therefore, we are going to rescue human beings, even if they're babies. Uh, it was very common in the ancient world because, you know, cities, they didn't, they didn't understand what you and I understand, like with Ebola. We know why that's occurring. And it's, you know, it's bacteria and it's lack of clean facilities and all that stuff. Okay, well, in the ancient world, they didn't understand that. When Peggy and I were in uh, London um, visiting our son and his wife uh, a while back, there was a great exhibit on Pompeii in the British Museum. And it was a fabulous museum. It was a fabulous exhibit. But they had reconstructed all these things from Pompeii. Remember, that's the city that was destroyed by Vesuvius. Remember that? And, so, and it was the kitchen. And you walk in, it's incredible to see this. Right here's the kitchen where they prepare all the food. And right next to where they're preparing all the food is the toilet. I mean, and they had, they had indoor plumbing in the sense that in the pipes would go down to the ground. I mean, it was that kind of thing. They, they, they really, but, you know, you think, duh. But they didn't understand the connection between unclean things and disease. So who today would build your kitchen and have your toilet right in your kitchen? I mean, just, just, and so I guess disease was just a very common thing. And so when disease would hit the cities, it spreads like quick. And this is where people would run for the hills. That's where that phrase comes from. You run for the hills. You go up to the hills so the disease upset. Christians wouldn't do that. They're the ones that are caring for the sick. Why? Because they have tender compassion on people. Rome, the Greco-Roman people could not figure this out, why Christians were doing this. But it became one of the most fantastic testimonies for the gospel. We're doing this because God loves us. God created us. We're of infinite worth and value to him. We created his image. Jesus died for us. Every human being is important to God. There was no other worldview in the ancient world that was teaching them. Today, which faith has built more hospitals, more educational institutions than any other faith in the world? Christianity. Hinduism. Hindus, they build hospitals in India, but they're not building hospitals all over the world. There are two, whenever there's a national disaster anywhere in the world, there are two nations that always show up. The United States and Israel. Israel, it's very quiet. Israel does not make a big deal out of this, but they are. Everyone knows that the catastrophe in Haiti with the storm two years ago, the first nation to show up with medical help and doctors was Israel. Did you see that in the New York Times? Did you see that in Washington Post? Did you see that on NBC News? But it was true. There was a little article in the New York Times four months after it occurred, the impact that the Israeli contribution had in the people of Haiti. And of course, the United States is always doing that. But why? It has something to do with our worldview. And so Paul is saying, because these things are true, there's also tender compassion in your life. Therefore, the things that he's asking him to do in verse 2, this becomes the command. Because the first four are true, this is what I want to see happen. And that's what verse 2. We spent the whole hour on one verse. It may be a record in this class. I don't know. But it's a rich, it's a rich passage. It's a, it's, a very, it's a very significant characterization of who we are being in Christ.
because the values that God has, tender compassion is the value we should have. All right. Great verse, isn't it? Now the quiz next week, I'm going to ask you, the day I start giving quizzes in this Bible class is the day I show up and there's nobody here. That's <laughs> will be the result of that. No, uh, but the basis for what we'll do next week is what we did today. And we'll be able to probably pick up a little more speed next week because it isn't quite as nuanced as this was. It's just an incredible series of four phrases, and I hope we did justice to it in our time here this morning. All right, I want to pray, and then uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week as we look at uh, verse 2, and you can get into this next section. It's a great, great passage. He brings up Jesus. Our Father, we're grateful for this uh, passage. We've spent an hour on one verse this morning, and yet it is a um, verse that's rich and deep and uh, filled with a, a greater understanding of what it means to be in Christ that wonderful phrase that just permeates the New Testament. It's everywhere. To be in Christ is to be in a place where there's security and assurance and safety and there's encouragement there. Encouragement of what it means to be in Christ, to be part of his family, to be part of all that he's doing. It's also a place of comfort because the love that you have for us is unconditional. There's enormous comfort in that, consolation in that. We also thank you for the fellowship with the Spirit that's part of being in Christ. The Spirit takes up residence in us. We are the new temple of the living God. We are, we are now able to experience his work in our lives as he transforms us, as he teaches us, as he guides us, as he sensitizes our conscience. All of those things the Spirit is doing day after day, week after week, month after month. That's part of our fellowship, that relationship, that intimacy. And that enables us then to exhibit one of your great values, tender compassion toward other people, seeing people the way you see them. We thank you for your work in our lives where you help us to be those kinds of representatives of you. Be with these men. Or a lot of the guys, for a lot of reasons, aren't here today. Be with them and all their responsibilities, all the things that they're involved with. And for us, as we go into the rest of our day, God, help us to be what we have just studied here today. Be good examples of that. Help us to be tender, compassionate people as we represent you to a world that increasingly is becoming more hostile and where they regard you as utterly irrelevant in life. That is not the case for us. You are the center of our lives because of what Jesus did for us. May we, may we represent that grand truth to those who need to hear it. In his name we pray. Amen. See you next week.